I want to ask you to open your copy of the scripture this morning for just a few moments to probably a verse of scripture that a number of you could quote without even having to look it up in your Bible. It's out of the third chapter of John's gospel, John chapter three and verse 16. John chapter three and verse 16, Jesus is speaking. Jesus was once the baby who was in the manger who was held by Mary and raised by Mary and Joseph, but who grew up to be a full-grown man. But the distinctive of his life was that he never sinned. He never broke the law of God, not in his actions, not in his words, not even in his mind. Because of that, he qualified to be the spotless Lamb of God. John, his first cousin, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming on that day of his baptism, he cried out, John did, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If he had violated the law of God, either by not keeping the law of God or, or going beyond, doing too much, trying to interpret for the Father what ought to be done, instead he waited for the timing of the Father. He didn't, he didn't violate in either direction by doing too much or not doing enough. He kept the law of God and qualified to be the spotless Lamb of God, and so when he on that day, on Good Friday, when he went to the cross and he was hung on that cross, the scripture says that he was hung there as the Lamb of God upon whom were placed all of the sins of the human race. It was no longer going to be a literal lamb or a, the kid of a goat, but it would be a human lamb, God's lamb, Jesus was God's lamb as a human, sacrificed to pay the sins that you and I, though we hadn't even been born yet, God being God saw us coming, saw you coming, and knew that there'd be choices that we would make that would violate his law, that would be sin in his sight. And so even before we drew a breath, even before we ever spoke a word, even before we ever made a choice, Jesus Christ hung on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. The scripture will teach, and this is the well-rounded scope of the good news, the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus did those things for us. He did those things for everybody, whether or not they would believe in him, but especially for those who would receive and believe that he died in my place before I was ever born for sins I hadn't committed yet and that he hadn't committed, but that he knew I would commit one day. And I embrace his death in my place on that cross 2,000 years ago, and I am forgiven in God's sight. 
I never have to earn it before God. I never have to strain and grunt and hope that maybe I'm forgiven because I've done enough good to offset all the bad I've done. We're not even looking in that direction anymore. We're looking solely and singularly at the person of Jesus Christ and what he did in my place for me. And I embrace that. And on the basis of what Jesus did for me, I am forgiven. You are forgiven. The home, our home in heaven is settled. We have a place at the table. We're not a stranger in glory. And there's some already on the other side that are, that are having their first Christmas in heaven. And they're looking back down here and they're saying, I'm looking at him. And it's all real and it's all true. And some of them are going to make heaven home for us, even more home for us. We, we haven't ever seen Jesus face to face, but, but we've seen our mother, we've seen our father, we've seen a brother, we've seen a dear friend and, and they're with the Lord now. And when those gates open for us and we're standing there, not only will we see Jesus, but we will see the promise of scriptures. We will see those who have preceded us in death and are already there. That's why heaven's gonna be called home is because folks who make a place home are already there. Amen and another hallelujah is deserved. Okay, now let me, let me back up here. Jesus is talking to a man. The conversation is recorded, at least some details of it in John chapter three. Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus who is called a ruler of the Jews. He was a man steeped in the traditions of the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion was intended to prepare folks for the coming of the Messiah. The, the coming of the Messiah was not a new concept. Jesus didn't inaugurate that when he showed up. They'd been looking for him and looking for him, looking for God. It would, be, it would be God who would come to the earth and God who would redeem mankind. In particular, the Jewish people would, would ascend to a place of international prominence and all the, the promises made to Solomon and David and Abraham would be, would be fulfilled one day. The Messiah would do that. But, but, but they had the Messiah pegged in a certain way that when Jesus, who really was the Messiah, showed up, they didn't even recognize him. They were curious about him. And that's why Nicodemus was showing up. Nicodemus would say, he called him rabbi. That was at least a favorable reference to this young man in his, in his early 30s to be called by an older man recognized as a, as a Jewish leader in their religious tradition. For him to call this one a, a rabbi, a, a teacher, say, Rabbi, you couldn't do the things that you're doing if God wasn't with him. <laughs> to which... Jesus responds, you can see it in your, in your reading of the text. Jesus responds to saying, by saying, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he, unless she has been born from above. And Nicodemus, the older man says, well, how, how can that be? Can, a, can an old man enter into the womb of his mother again and be born all over again? And Jesus is saying, you're not following me. Not talking about a physical rebirth 
And the term born again literally means, the word again, the, 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 the preposition in the original language doesn't mean in every case again. It means to be born from above, out of heaven, the Spirit of God, to come into a person who already has a human body. But isn't alive, is not alive with the life of God on the inside of him or her until God implants that life inside. He gives us biological life. But the scripture will say we are born in a sense dead in our trespasses and sins. That there's a part of us that can't think like we ought to think in terms of God. We can't feel like we ought to feel in terms of God because there's a part of us that's dead. That's what Jesus was saying. He's looking at a man who knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He knew all the traditions, all the Jewish traditions. I mean, he could, he could quote scripture. You just poke him and a verse would come out. But Jesus was looking at him and saying, your only problem, Nicodemus, is that there is a part of you that is dead, that is graveyard dead. Even though you know the Bible, you raise your hands in praise, you come to the feasts and the celebrations and you fast and you tithe and do all that. But there's a part of you that's dead. And I've come to make available to you, to the human race, the opportunity <laughs> to be born from above. To be born from above. So that there is a part of you that has been dead, that hasn't been able to love the Lord, that hasn't been able to follow the Lord, that hasn't been able truly from your heart to enjoy God. It's because there's a part of you that's dead. But when the life of God comes into your physical body and the life of God begins to animate your, your invisible part that makes you who you are, then oh my goodness, that's what is called eternal life. That's what is called the life that only God has, only God can dispense, unending life. It speaks of living not in heaven, it, it, speaks, it speaks of life that, that has extended from the past, but we pick it up in the present and it goes into the future. It's unending life. It's the unending life of God that can invade our hearts through receiving Jesus into our hearts as Savior and Lord and continue all the way on throughout eternity. We don't get everlasting life when we die and get to heaven. Jesus is saying there's a dimension of life there's a dimension of real joy. There's a dimension of real freedom. There's a dimension of real purpose in your life and focus in your life and opportunity fulfilled in your life. There's a dimension of that available to you that is supernatural that God wants you to have right now. Right now. So, so that's why you look around and you see folks who have struggled with this, that, and the other for years and years. And then it's like all of a sudden there's a change that has come on that their shoe size hadn't changed and their eye color hadn't changed, the street address might not have changed, but there's something going on on the inside that has changed. It's like when you look into their eyes, it's like you're looking into another set of eyes, looking back at you. And if you've known them before, you may not totally recognize them now. What is that? Better question is, who is that? I'll tell you who it is. It's the indwelling presence of the living Jesus Christ who has come from above to engage and deal with and set free and come to full life inside their hearts. Now, now, I believe all that's true, but that's not really what I had written down to say this morning. 
So maybe somebody just needed a little encouragement along those lines this morning. Here, here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I wanted to say. What if everything you ever thought you knew about God was wrong? What if everything you thought you knew about God was wrong? He's mad. He's mad at me. He's a long way off. He's distant. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about me and mine. He's irrelevant. I'm the one who has to answer the emails. I'm the one who has to fulfill a contract. I'm the one who has to deal sales with the public. Where is he? So he's just irrelevant. But what if everything along those lines that you ever thought that God was or God is, is just flat out wrong? Now say that in contrast to what Jesus was saying to this older man, this religious man who embodied a frame of reference regarding God that started out with God's ticked. He, he, just, he just had it up to here with all of the human race except for those who are dotting the I's and crossing the T's like we are. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jewish people. They understood God as only a book of rules. Nothing about relationship. Nothing about heart. But just all the thou shalt nots and you better or else. Jesus had come from heaven, remember? Before he had divested himself or emptied himself of all of the abilities that he would have as the fullness of God in heaven, hearing everything, seeing everything, being everywhere all the time. There, there wasn't a conversation that the Jewish leaders ever had that Jesus wasn't in on before Bethlehem. But from that period of time, he chose to limit himself to the form of a man so that he could come to rescue his creatures, to rescue the men and the women fallen. But he knew how they thought. He knew what religion would do. It will build a set of structures. It will build a set of bars. You have to keep jumping over the bar in order to hope that maybe you pleased God, and that maybe you'll be forgiven. So here comes God in a human body with lips, vocal cords, eyes, ears, arms, feet, and he says to Nicodemus, 
This verse, verse 16, John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him, in Jesus, that one would have, at the moment of believing in Jesus, that one would have everlasting life, not perishing, not dying by degrees, not being consumed by death by degrees, and ultimately to spend an eternity just where your life has proven you always wanted to be. It's a, it's a life without God. That's what hell, H-E-L-L, that four-letter word that speaks of a literal place described in Scripture, that's what hell is. It is an existence. It is a place absolutely devoid of God. And any of God's goodness and any of God's favors and any of God's grace Hell is the perfect vacuum of anything of God. Heaven is the exact opposite of that. For God, Jesus said, and this is God talking, for God so loved the world. Now, folks, listen. If, if, if you're hearing this this morning, and, and, the, and the knee-jerk, the default position can be when something sad happens or something bad happens, something surprisingly difficult happens, and the conclusion is, it's happened because God is mad at me. It's happened because God doesn't care about me. It's happened because God is oblivious to what concerns me. You can believe that, and you can be believing exactly what Satan wants you to believe. That God is ticked. God, God, God is mad. He just starts out mad. When your name comes up, he's just already mad. I need to, I want to prove to you that Jesus is speaking the exact opposite. Proof coming from the words of Jesus. He said to this man, steeped in his religion, who was believing that it's all about how much you can do for God, perform for God, to earn an audience with God or favor with God. Jesus just, just evidently had to blow Nicodemus's religious mind when he said, God so loved the world. Not just the law keepers. Not just the goody two-shoes. Not just the hand raisers and the spirit dancers and the anything else you want to add to that. World means all living humans on the face of the earth. From Adam and Eve till there's no more human on the earth. God 
And this is God talking. Said, he so loved the world. Not was disgusted. There was a part of him that was hurt. That was, the, the, at, at the core of this meaning, God loved the world, meant that, that God was having pity. He felt sorry for the world. He felt sorry for what Satan, the devil, and the fallen flesh, that old part of us that we inherited from Adam, the scripture would say, that wants to go our own way, that wants to turn away from God, that doesn't have the capacity to believe God, that doesn't want to keep God, that doubts God. All, all of those things, the, the, the flesh and Satan, for God to love the world means that he felt sorry for the world. And listen, he feels sorry for the world. Or this message of Jesus Christ would have ended before you and, ever, you and I ever got here this morning, but it hasn't. Jesus said, God so loved the world. Now you can say, you can say, I love bluebell ice cream. But I so love blackberry cobbler with blueberry ice cream. You, you can love, and I'm not trying to be corny. You can love, and then you can really love. God talking says, here is how I feel about the world. And that puts you and me and whatever we're going through and whatever craziness is happening around us and whatever mistakes we have made or sins we've committed, we're right in the middle of this statement. I really love the world. You see, that, that just blows the hat in the creek of a religious teetotaler who thinks that he's doing it exactly right and there's no room for any variation of interpretation. He's got God cornered in a box. And here's God talking to the one who has God in the box saying everything you ever thought you knew about God. At the core of who he is, at the better yet, at the core of his heart for human people, humanity, is wrong. I'm not mad. I love you. I'm not aloof. I care about you. I'm not distant. I am where you are. You've never cried a tear that I hadn't heard. You've never shouted a shout in frustration and confusion and fear that I hadn't heard. God so loved the world. Folks, listen. Hope and that's what this was all supposed to be about this morning, was hope for the holidays. Hope begins with an exact opposite of what you may have thought about God. If you never open your heart up to the fact that, that he loves you, if you never open your heart up to that, I'm, and I'm folks, listen, I'm talking about folks who have been in the church. You can sing every song and four of the verses. 
by memory. You, you could start in Revelation and work your way back with all the books of the Bible, backwards of Genesis, and then the table of contents. You, you got the stuff down. But what you don't have is no one in your knower that you are loved by your Father. You were loved before you ever drew a breath, before your mother ever called you by name, before you could ever tie your shoe. You were loved by this Jesus, God come in the flesh. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All right, look, so why, why did the son have to come? And then the word forgive means give up fully. Give up even and including to execution, which is what would happen to Jesus. Why did he have to give his son? Scripture will say in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus, the son of God, appeared for this very purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, so if, if God loves me, then where does all the bad stuff come from? Where does all the break my heart stuff come from? Where does that come from? Here's where it comes from. There is another force, second only to the most powerful force. And his name is Lucifer, Satan, the devil, all of those terms, second most powerful force in the universe. And he is bent upon maligning the character of the one true God. He's been upon stealing the attention away and doing whatever he can to lie about the character of God so that the bad things that he causes can be blamed upon the one true God. Jesus would say, the thief, another synonym for Satan, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it super abundantly. Until we get to heaven, there's gonna be a devil. Until we get up there, there's going to be someone fighting to destroy our peace of mind and our solitude and our joy of things in this life. It's not the Lord. It's not the Lord. It's not the one who loves you. But somewhere along the line, we, something's got to happen. I got to quit blaming God for the bad stuff. Everything that I ever thought I knew about God may have to change radically, dramatically to the opposite if I'm ever going to know what it is to live and walk in hope. Folks, listen, we, we can't make it. We just exist if we have no hope. But if the God of hope, now may the God of hope, Romans 15, 13, our, our theme verse for this series, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If the God of hope is ever going to be able to do anything inside you, you're going to have to open yourself up to the fact that he loves you. Love produces hope. Hope draws its strength from, draws its very existence from the knowledge that I am loved by the God who created me. 
The God who knows everything about me. The God knows my bad. The God knows he knows my good. He knows the thing I'm capable of. He knows the places where I've blown it, but still he loves me. And he loves me not because I earned it, because I did nothing to deserve it and I couldn't do anything to earn it. Somehow I just know that in spite of who I am and what I am and what's going on, somehow my father is loving me. Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling with hope, you're probably also struggling with whether God really loves you. So, so, so if, if this morning can be an opportunity for some light to shine in on a lie you've been believing. But if God cared about me, why would this happen? If God cared about me, why didn't that happen? Even the devil, even though the devil is real and he seeks to orchestrate our hurt, Romans 8, 28 just handles it. The devil is not bigger than God in your life. The circumstances that Satan will try to cause to crush you and ruin you and deprive from you, those circumstances are not final and they are not bigger than God. Our God, Paul would say, causes all things. All. What part of all are we not going to let in? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He will not stop Satan at every stance. He will not force him to back off at every spot, but he does promise that there's no way that Satan will ever touch you, but that God Bigger than that, bigger than Satan, bigger than the circumstance, will not turn even that circumstance somehow, some way into good in your life. I know some will hear that and you'll say, but pastor, you don't, you don't, you don't know what's happened to me. I don't. But oh, my brothers and my sisters, here's what I do know. God's word is true. That what we may not be able to feel and see right now, and it may seem so impossible. And when the disciples came to Jesus, they were saying, and they, he could see the sorrow on their face when he was saying, I'm fixing to leave you. Jesus said, this sorrow will be turned into joy. The sorrow of his death would be turned into the joy of his resurrection. They couldn't see it because they were still just facing the cross, facing his Humiliation and his death, but oh, it was true. This joy can be turned, the sorrow can be turned into joy.